I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, and we're going to read from verse 1 to verse 15. The Bible says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men have who have upset the world. I'm going to read that again. These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. And when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul in Berea also, They came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. In verse 6, and the last part of it, again, the word of God says, These men who have upset the world have come here also. If you have an ESV translation, it will read like this. These men have turned the world upside down. They've shaken their whole world. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul gives thanks that the faith of the Roman Christians is proclaimed throughout the whole world. These early believers had turned the world right side up. Now, you've got to remember that Luke is recording the mob's words here. They've turned our world upside down. They've upset everything. But in reality, the Christians were turning the world right side up. Sin and rebellion has turned our world upside down. And the gospel turns people back to the way they should be. The Holy Spirit's influence in these early Christians produced lives of preaching the gospel, living the gospel, and suffering for Christ. 
The result was that an unbelieving Jews and pagan people were being turned away from sin and being reconciled to God. It was upsetting the Jews as the synagogues were being emptied and upsetting pagan people as the temples were being emptied. The gospel of Jesus Christ was turning the world the right way up. Brothers and sisters in Christ, should that not be our objective? To turn the world the right way up for Christ. Is that not what Jesus meant when Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, because making disciples and baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that Christ taught us turns them to a right relationship with God and turns this world the right way up, at least the people that are being saved anyways. So why is it that we are not having the same impact in our world that they had? Why don't we see our world being upset, if you like, or turned the right way up? Perhaps it's because our lives do not match our preaching. And tragically, we can look through the history of the Christian church in the last hundred years, and we can see massive distortions, massive contradictions between the life that is lived and the gospel that is preached from the pulpit. Perhaps it's because we're fallen too deeply in love with this present world, like Demas that Peter talks, not Peter, that Paul talks about later in his letter to Timothy. Having loved this present world, he has departed to another place. Why is it we're not turning our world upside down for Christ? While the text opened before us, today illustrates, at least in part, what's necessary for our world to be turned right side up. So what must we do? And I want to give you three points, as usual, from the text. First of all, we persist in ministry. Secondly, and we'll take most of our time with this one, we present the gospel. And thirdly, we encourage examination. And you have uh, in front of you, you should have a little note sheet there you can follow along with if you'd like. First of all, very briefly, we persist in ministry. We've talked about this quite a bit recently. But Paul had a persistent pattern in ministry and missionary labor, despite suffering and hardship. And we can see it as you read the book of Acts with some variation in almost every city he goes into. In Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, in Philippi, in Thessalonica, in Berea, and Corinth, this is his persistent pattern. He arrives in town. He enters the synagogue. He presents the gospel. Some Gentiles and some Jews believe. The rest get angry. Paul is harassed. He leaves town. He goes to the next town. And he goes into the synagogue. He presents the gospel. Some Gentiles and some Jews believe. The rest get angry. He gets harassed and beaten for his faith. He goes to the next town. It just seems to happen over and over and over again, doesn't it? And yet Paul is absolutely persistent in his ministry. In the case of Thessalonica, he arrives still bruised and sore and beaten from his time in Philippi, yet Paul persists. In my mind's eye, I can see this. He's described in some traditional literature as being short and balding with a a prominent nose and kind of a stooped walk. We know that all the beatings he received would have affected the muscles in his back and lower legs, so he would have walked with kind of a hobbly gait. I can see him hobbling up to the synagogue and just looking in and thinking, here we go again, and going in and preaching the gospel. And it's not long before people are upset and mobs are formed and people are shouting and calling for his death. And yet Paul persisted. 
He knew, he remembered that there was a prize, a crown of life laid up for him in glory. And so he tells Timothy that he ran his race all the way to the end. He persisted in what God had given him to do. So first of all, how do we turn our world right side up for Christ? We remember the rewards promised us by Christ and we persist in our gospel ministry. Sunday school teachers, persist. Persist in teaching and explaining the gospel to little ones. Youth group leaders, when you get there and you get going, persist in explaining and proving and preaching the gospel. They don't want to hear it. They won't want that. They'll want the fun times and the hoopla and the exciting and the eat the pizza and have fun and all the rest of that. But you persist in explaining and teaching the gospel. Elders and deacons, it's our responsibility to to persist in our ministry of serving and shepherding the church, equipping the church for the work of ministry that we might all persist in our ministry. And for those diligent praying moms and grandmothers, and I know there's a whole handful in this church, mothers and grandmothers who spend time faithfully on their knees, persist in your prayers. Evangelists persist in presenting the gospel, letterboxing, on the street corners, wherever. Even when the nasty phone calls come, we persist. You see, the reality of our message is not proven by finely crafted sermons and cool YouTube videos. It's our persistence in living and proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, despite opposition and struggle and suffering. So first of all, we persist in our ministry. Secondly, we present the gospel. This is going to take a little while to unpack, and you can follow along on that note sheet. First of all, we present the gospel through godly living. We don't hear much about the Thessalonian people in the book of Acts, but you take the book of 1 Thessalonians and just take your Bibles and flip over there for a second. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul there gives us a whole lot more detail about his life and ministry and the Thessalonian response to it. If you just, I'll just skip through some verses and give you some samples of, of what kind of life they lived in Thessalonica. They weren't there just for three Saturdays, by the way. They were in the synagogue for three Sabbaths, but likely they were there for much longer than that. And there was time spent in teaching the people. We see that in 1 Thessalonians, which is written, by the way, not long after they left. In chapter 1, verse 5, he says, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul says, After we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel amid much affliction. In chapter 2 and verse 4, he says, We spoke not as pleasing men, but as pleasing God. In chapter 2 verse 9, he says, You recall, brethren, our labor and our hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. In chapter 2, verse 10, he says, You're our witnesses, Thessalonians, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave towards you. Paul presented the gospel, and it began with his own living by faith in God despite suffering. It began with his own submission to God. He knew as he walked up to that synagogue door, he knew what was coming, but he knew 
he was behaving and acting in submission to God. You go right back to his conversion, and one of the things Ananias is told about Paul, or Saul of Tarsus as he was known back then, was, I will show him the things he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul knew that going into synagogues and preaching the gospel and going out in the street corners and preaching the gospel was going to result in suffering, but in submission to God, he carried on anyway. Brothers and sisters, our world will remain unchanged if the gospel we preach is not first preached through our lives. The words we say, the reactions we have, the responses we have to all the things that go on around us. If you feel a little convicted by that, join the party. So do I. But that's how the gospel is communicated, first and foremost. It's the love that we show each other. It's the love we have for our brothers and sisters. It's the life we live before the world, lived in holiness and godliness and a dedication and a commitment to Christ and the gospel. I've said much about this recently, so I'm going to leave it there. Secondly, we present the gospel from the scriptures. Notice in in verses 2 and 3 and verse 11, the prominent place of scripture in this story. The scriptures were the source material of Paul's apologetic, his explaining and evidencing and preaching the gospel. He was making a reasoned argument to support really three points. And we see them right in the text in verses 2 and 3. Number one, that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. Number two, it was necessary for Christ to rise again. And thirdly, that the Christ is Jesus of Nazareth. That's his whole point. His reasoned argument was first necessary to correct their wrong understanding of Messiah. And we just cast your minds back to the Old Testament a little bit. and We'll kind of do a sweeping survey there. The twin nations of Israel and Judah had been exiled by God into captivity in Assyria and Babylon because of their centuries-long persistent disobedience to God's law. At the end of the 70-year exile, a remnant of people had returned expecting the rise of a promised Davidic king to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. The temple was rebuilt, the city was rebuilt, the walls were rebuilt, time passed, And still the promised king did not rise. And by the 3rd century BC, which is, by the way, that time between Malachi and Matthew in your Bibles, that silent period there, the Jews' expectation for a Messiah had greatly increased in reaction to the first, the Greek, sorry, in reaction to first Greek and then Roman rule over them, and also in reaction to what was seen as a hostile takeover maneuver of the high priesthood by the Hasmoneans, their hope for a Davidic Messiah grew stronger and stronger, fueled by Old Testament texts promising a future anointed king. I'm going to give you a couple of samples of those texts. Three of these were very key in the Jews' thinking. In Genesis 49 and verse 10, Jacob promised, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples or of the nations. In Numbers 24, verse 17, Balaam, the prophet, promised, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel. 
He's promising a future anointed king who will come. In Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2 and verse 10, she describes him as God's judge and king, the anointed. That's the first time in the Bible that Messiah is specifically mentioned. It's Hannah's prayer. In 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 13. It's kind of neat, by the way. Uh, 1 Samuel 7, you know what happens? Israel sins against God by asking for a king. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God responds and he promises David a perpetual dynasty, a kingdom forever with David's son as the king. What's he talking about? Solomon? In one sense, yeah, but in a far greater sense, Christ who will come. In Isaiah 11, 1 to 6, Isaiah promises the branch which is a messianic term for the anointed son of David who would reign over all nations. And there are so many more texts you could look at that describe the Messiah like this. And during the second and third century, non-sacred, not biblical texts, were written promising a worthy anointed one who would restore Israel to its former glory as God's people and God's kingdom. That expectation was very much alive and strong uh, during Paul and Jesus' time. So the first century Jews, with whom Paul was reasoning in the synagogue, expected a human Messiah who would come to them. He would not suffer a violent death, but rather he would evict and conquer the Romans. He would restore Israel's kingdom and priesthood. He would establish the Jews in their land with their temple and their king and reign with a perpetual dynasty. For these first century Jews, the concept of a suffering, dying, resurrected, and reigning Messiah to reconcile them to God was inconceivable. To the Jews, they were the people of God. They didn't need to be reconciled. So Paul to stand there and tell them, you need to repent and you need to believe, that would have absolutely rattled their cage. It would have turned their world right side up. But God's promised biblical Messiah had come, Jesus of Nazareth. He was rejected by the Jews because he was not what they expected or wanted. For the Messiah to come and reconcile all nations of the earth to God in forgiveness of sin was something they never truly understood and still don't really understand it today. So Paul's presentation of the gospel required, first of all, a correction of the Jews' misunderstanding of their own Messiah and Christ, which, by the way, raises a really good point for us. Part of our gospel presentation is to recognize and correct the world's misunderstanding of a Savior. Our world wants a powerful but flawed human Savior able to cure all diseases and leap tall buildings in a single bound, able to save us from all our self-created disasters, able to give us everything we want whenever we want it, but never asking or demanding anything from us in return. You say, how do I know that? Superhero movies. Don't laugh. Oh, you can laugh if you want. But superhero movies are actually surprisingly revealing of where our culture is and what it thinks about. Look at all the superhero movies, right? When I was a kid, Superman, man, he could jump over tall buildings and his costume was bright red and bright blue and the big cape and all that. And he was always doing wonderful things with a big smile on his face and perfectly styled hair. 
Now what is he? His outfit's completely black and dark. And all these guys in the superhero movies now, they're all flawed. They all got problems. Like I told you before, I'll tell you again, I went on the, with my mom and dad as a little kid to see Superman back in 1970, whatever it was, when it first came out. And my dad looked at me and he said, in the interesting son, the world's looking for a savior. I thought, you know what? You're absolutely right. They're looking for a savior. We're looking, this world wants a savior that will fix their problems and never ask or demand anything from us in terms of a change of heart, a change of lifestyle, a change of relationship to the God who created us. Which is why the gospel we present is so countercultural. He's not the savior that they want, that we want. He is the savior that we all so desperately need. The one whom all men cannot live without, not for eternity. He is the one whom Paul went into the synagogue to present to the Jews, their own true Messiah. Paul reasoned with them from the Old Testament scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Why couldn't God just give him a lethal injection, wake him up and it's all done? Why did he have to suffer the way he did? And there's two answers to that question. The answer number one is because of God's wrath, number one, and because of God's love, number two. This is going to take a bit of unpacking, but it's, it's important that we understand this. In Genesis 1, verse 26 to 27, God created mankind in his own image to fulfill humanity's highest possible potential of glorifying God through joyful, loving obedience to His word and will. You were created with a purpose. You are not an accident. Not remotely. God designed you and put together you, each of you, each one of us, in a particular and unique way so that each of us could glorify God through obedience in our own context with our own abilities and skills and talents and all of it. He designed us for an incredibly high purpose. He designed us to know absolute joy and fulfillment of life in obedience to God. God warned mankind in the form of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 verse 17, And the day you eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will disobey and you will die. But man sinned against God anyway and went his own way. And we've all inherited that drive, that bent towards sin from Adam. Mankind disobeyed God and was separated from God. That's death, to be separated. In Ezekiel 18 and verse 20, the soul that sins, the Bible says, shall surely die. I love the old King James rendering of that verse. It's just so rich. The soul that sins, which one of us sins? Everyone. And so we die. But mankind's sin also affected God as well as us. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, the Bible says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Bible says the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and the Lord grieved in his heart. In Psalm 7, verse 11 and 12, the Bible says that God is a righteous judge and a God who is angry every day. So God is righteously, justly angry at all mankind for our sin. 
our sin and disobedience, his defiance of his holy authority. And so he's angry at the Jews who describe in Isaiah 1 verse 4 as a sinful nation, a people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They've abandoned the Lord and despised the Holy One of Israel. God is angry. Angry at Israel for their sin, but likewise just as angry at us for our sin. God who created us for his glory, who commanded our obedience for our joy. He didn't command us to keep his word as a grudging, terrible drudgery. He commanded us to obey him knowing that as we obeyed, we would have the highest joy and fulfillment that we could possibly imagine. No human being alive today or any other time except Jesus Christ has ever come to the highest potential of what they could be as a human created in God's image. Why? Because sin has tainted and marred it all. God who created us for his glory, who commanded our obedience for our joy and our good has been disobeyed and rejected by mankind, by you and by I, by me. And God's angry. You want to talk about a countercultural message? That's one. Why can't you just talk about the love of God? We're going to go there right now. But God is angry. And that's something that we have to understand. If you don't understand the anger and the wrath of God against sin, you will struggle with eternal security. That's a proven thing. We need to understand that God is angry with us. But... Two of the greatest words in the whole New Testament. Six letters, two words. But God. But God intervened. God, because of his electing love for his people, his love for the glory of his own name, and his loving desire to show us the infinite worth of all of his grace. You will never understand God's grace and God's goodness until you come to the foot of the cross of Christ and recognize there that God has done a tremendous work to save you and it's love god in love dealt with our sin for we could not do it ourselves god in love for you removed the offense that your sin has caused himself god in love washed the guilt and shame and defilement that sin has brought to us and god did it through messiah's the christ's suffering bloodshed and death You think love is romantic gestures. Love is flowers and chocolates and white dresses on a wedding day and skipping through the tulips with your beloved one. That might be love on some levels, but you don't know. None of us will really understand love until we stand and look at the cross and see the blood of Christ that ran down as a testimony, as a powerful testimony of the love of God for us. Listen to Isaiah 53 as I read some of these verses about the Lord Jesus. Isaiah 53 and verse 3, Surely our griefs He, that's Christ, bore. Our sorrows Christ carried. In verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell on Him, on Christ. In verse 10, the Bible says, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering, which he did. 
And in verse 11, the Bible says that God shall see the anguish of Christ's soul, his soul, and be satisfied. So Christ had to suffer. Paul is making a reasoned argument. You notice all those texts I quoted to you, they're all Old Testament. I did that on purpose. There's so many other texts in the Old Testament that tell us all about what Christ did, that promise what would happen. And I'm sure as Paul worked his way through over three Sabbath mornings, several hours each, explaining and reasoning from the Scriptures, he drew these and many others to apply to Jesus and show how he was the Messiah. Christ had to suffer because of the wrath of God against sinners. And Christ had to suffer because of the love of God for sinners, for you and me. For God is not only angry at sinners for their sin, he loves them, he loves us, but not as we are in our sin. Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 9, listen to what the Bible says. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who follows righteousness. To tell people that God loves you just as you are is a dangerous proposition. For if God loves us just as we are, why then did Christ need to come? Why did God not simply accept us just as we are? The answer is he cannot accept us just as we are. God is absolutely holy and undefiled, separated from sin and sinners. God is so holy, so pure, so separate that the seraphim who hover over his throne declaring to one another God's holiness cannot even look at him. Seraphim have no sin. Created beings and yet sinless. And the Bible says that when they speak about God's holiness, they pull their wings over their faces and they cry out from underneath their wings, holy, holy, holy. My dear friend, God cannot accept you the way you are, but God in love and in grace, God loved us in this way. He atoned for our sin with Christ's blood and death. He cleansed your conscience with Christ's blood. He reconciled. He brought us to himself, having removed the offense and the sin that separates us. All this at the cost of the suffering of Jesus Christ. And so Paul with these, and I'm sure many, many other Old Testament scriptures, reasoned with the Jews, explaining and proving with evidence over three Sabbath services that the Christ, their Messiah, had to suffer for their sin. He had to suffer for your sin and for mine. But that's not the only point he made. It was necessary for Christ to rise again. Death is the condemnation of the sinner. Without, without sin, there is no death. Christ had to rise because he has no sin of his own. The Old Testament speaks of it in a few places. I'll give you two. In Isaiah 9 and verse 6, which is a messianic prophecy, Isaiah writes, The child, the son to be born, on whose shoulders the government will rest, is called what? Mighty God. And because God has no sin, therefore this child to be born that was promised of Isaiah, likewise, being God, would have no sin. The Old Testament actually speaks of it. In Psalm 16 and verse 11, which is a text that Paul uses and Peter uses to talk about the resurrection of Christ, 
the psalmist writes that God will not allow his Holy One to undergo decay or corruption. Every human being, born, living, dying, experiences physical corruption, decay at death, proving their own personal sin. But this one, God's Holy One, will not experience corruption and decay of his own physical body because he has no sin. The Messiah who came had no sin of his own. He suffered and died for the sins of others, your sins and mine. He was buried and was raised again, for death had no hold on him. But that only proves the Old Testament promises of resurrection. Why was it necessary? Well, first of all, to declare that the Son of God is the Son of God. That was declared his resurrection. But Romans 4.25 gives us another answer. The Bible says there, Paul writes, He was delivered over for our transgressions. He was raised for our justification. Christ, having dealt with our sin, finished the job of saving us to the very full. His blood cleansed us from the stain of sin. And as part of a great transaction of faith, he applies his righteousness to us. As an act of God's grace in response to our faith, we are justified by faith. We're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus for my salvation. Think of this. Just we, we accept some biblical truths without stopping to really chew over them. Stop and think about this for a second. The righteousness of Christ. Perfect, sinless, holy is applied to you and me. If you don't need to sit down after hearing that, Something wrong with us. That righteousness, it was necessary for him to rise so we could be justified. His righteousness could be applied to us. His righteous, sinless state is proven by his resurrection. His righteousness can now be applied by faith to us who believe. And the question is, do you believe the gospel? It's easy to say, yes, of course, I believe. I, I understand all the facts. I've got everything lined up. No problem. I get it right here. That's great. Right here is good, but it's not where it's got to land up. It's here. Do you believe it? And I mean believe in the, in the sense that it has changed your whole life. I know someone, a good friend of mine now, who came to Christ not that many years ago, and, and what he was before that to what he is now is such a traumatic, radical difference. You can look and say, that man was saved. He, be he believes the gospel. It's radically changed him. Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures, taking hours and hours, explaining and proving and demonstrating the necessary the necessity for their Messiah to suffer for their sins, to be crucified, to die and be buried and rise again. Paul's teaching, his explanation and evidence would have turned their world, call it upset, upside down, or I like right side up. It put everything right. For the first time, they would have opened their scriptures and seen in all those texts, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. It must be Jesus. Because look what Paul or Luke writes about him. He says, 
in verse 3, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this is, or this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. No longer can the Jews see themselves as right with God by their law keeping for they had all broken the law. No longer can the Jews see the Messiah as merely a man coming to evict the Romans and reestablish their kingdom. Now they must see him as truly God and truly man who came, who lived, who walked, who talked, who ministered, who displayed himself to them as their Messiah and who died for them, was buried for them and rose again. And the more Paul talked, I am convinced that he continually wove in the truth that Jesus of Nazareth is their Messiah. If you go back to Acts 17 to 3, we just read that this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. He preached Christ to them. The third way we present the gospel is in preaching. We can present all the reasoned arguments we want for the gospel and we can appeal to the logic and the understanding, but in preaching we appeal to the heart, to the will, to turn to repent and to believe. He is the one who was promised to them, but he was not the one the Jews were expecting. No doubt as Paul reasoned from the scriptures, he used the Old Testament promises about Christ in his preaching to prove that this Jesus whom they'd rejected and crucified is the Messiah. Consider what the Old Testament says about him and the fulfillment. This is a handful, like a tiny handful. I think there's something like 50 plus promises. I haven't checked for a while. You come up and tell me that's wrong. You can do that. I don't know for sure, but there is dozens of them. Here's a tiny handful. In Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah promised he would be born of a virgin. In Luke 2, it happened. In Micah 5, verse 2, it was promised. This is centuries before he's born. He'd be born in Bethlehem in Matthew 1 and Luke 2. It happened. In Hosea 11, verse 1, it was promised that God would call his son out of Egypt. In Matthew 2, 15, it happened. In Isaiah 40, verse 3, and Malachi 3, verse 1, it was promised he would be preceded by the Lord's messenger, an Elijah-like prophet figure. In Matthew 3 and Mark 1, it happened. In Isaiah 61, and verse 1, it was promised he would be filled with the Holy Spirit. In Luke 4, Jesus came into the synagogue in Nazareth and claimed the fulfillment of that scripture for himself. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, it was promised the king would ride into Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey, and in Matthew 21, it happened. In Psalm 22, it was promised before crucifixion was even invented that he would be forsaken by God, pierced with nails, and experience craving thirst in his death. And in Matthew 27, Mark 14, Luke 23, and John 19, it happened. Isaiah 53 and verse 9, it was promised his death would be with the wicked and he would be buried with the rich. In all four Gospels, it happened. In Psalm 16 and verse 10, he was promised he would rise again and it happened. But far beyond that one, repeatedly Jesus sat down with his disciples and said, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be beaten up. I'm going to be cast out and rejected. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to rise three days later. I don't care how smart you are. You might be the most brilliant guy in this room. I guarantee you, not one of you can say, in this day, in this circumstances, I'm going to die, and then three days later, I'm going to rise again. And it happened. 
exactly as he promised. It happened. Listen, God has made this Jesus whom Paul preached and Peter preached, both Lord and Christ. God, having overlooked the times of ignorance, is now calling all men, women, children, everywhere, Jew and Gentile alike, to repent of sin and to believe the gospel because God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, the man, whom he has appointed, having given assurance of this by raising that man from the dead. That's Acts 17, 30 and 31. So, what will you do? You sitting here right now. Oh, beloved, see Christ. See Christ who endured such great affliction against himself on our behalf to display the love of God for sinners for you. See Christ who suffered and died according to the scriptures to turn away the wrath of an angry, offended, all-powerful, all-knowing God. To remove the offense your sin caused, to wash your conscience clean, to make you a new creature in Christ, to adopt you as his precious child and to give you a future and a hope. The call on all of us is to repent of sin See Christ through the eyes of faith and believe. And brothers and sisters, we'll turn the world right side up when we persist in our ministry. You, you might come up to me and say, you know, now you're, I know you love the gospel, but you've been hammering at it for weeks now. And my answer is going to be in for years to come. I never get tired of it. And brother and sister in Christ, If you are in Christ, you'll never get tired of hearing it. It's like like two lovers. And they sit down every anniversary, a married couple. And they recount to each other the story of how they fell in love. Oh, I remember the time I saw you and, and, you know, this, that, and the other thing. And I remember the time we did this. and and, And they rehearse those stories And they share the moment that they fell in love and there was a relationship formed there. Neither one of them will turn to the other and say, I am so sick of hearing this. Right? Uh, Marital advice for your anniversary, don't do that. And they won't. Why? Because there's a love for the other person. And to hear the story of God's love, love that rescued you from wrath, And Paul went into the synagogue and he explained, he reasoned, he gave evidence, he preached, this Jesus whom I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ. We persist in our ministry despite suffering. We present the gospel, the gospel illustrated and adorned by the lives we live, the gospel reasoned and proclaimed from the scriptures. It's not enough to present a reasoned, logical argument because knowing the facts saves nobody. It's by us bending our will and submitting ourselves to Christ that we know salvation. Well, I spent way too much on the second point, so just the very briefly the last point. In Acts 17, verse 4, some of the Jews and many of the Gentiles are persuaded by Paul's reasoning, his explaining, and so on. We know from 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, Paul says there, the word of the gospel came to the Thessalonian believers in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Meaning what? 
as they heard the message. It was filled with the power of God. Paul says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile or the Greek. They received the message in the Holy Spirit. What does he mean? He means that as they, he was preaching and explaining that message to them, the Spirit of God was at work in their hearts, opening the eyes of their hearts and their understanding and working in them to give them faith, to plant within them seeds of faith, to open their eyes, to see its truth, to cause them to be born again and to give them the faith to believe. In Acts 17, verses 5 to 9, we see again unbelieving, jealous Jews raising a mob, dragging Jason and the others into the marketplace. They're unable to find Paul and Silas. They take a bond from Jason, and the scene closes, and Paul and Silas are scurrying out of town, heading to the next place. And what do they do when they get there? They go into the gospel, into the synagogue, and they preach the gospel, and it all starts again. But I want to finish this up emphasizing what the text emphasizes, which is the place of Scripture. I titled this point, Encourage Their Investigation. This whole sermon is is about turning the world right side up. So how does encouraging the recipients of the gospel, which these Bereans here are, to examine these things for themselves, how does that help achieve the end of writing our world? Well, first of all, How do we know Paul encouraged them? I mean, I just took that point and almost wrote it between the lines, didn't I? Well, think of this. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 7, Paul encouraged Timothy to consider what he said or written because he knew he was writing Scripture, for the Lord would give him understanding. In 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, we're looking at last Sunday, he talks about Timothy knowing the Scriptures that are sufficient to make one wise for salvation through faith in Christ. So it would be highly inconsistent for Paul to reason with them from the Scriptures, for him to describe the Scriptures as sufficient to make one wise for salvation, and then seeing the Bereans going for their Bibles, their scrolls, to study, to go, oh, don't, don't do that, just take my word for it. That wouldn't make sense, right? So I'm taking that point, Because we in our culture have Bibles so readily available. We're handing them out for free to people who will take them. And the way in which we turn this world upside down is by living the gospel, by preaching the gospel, and by handing them the book of truth, that in searching for the truth of God, in the book of God's truth, they will certainly find the truth about Christ. They'll find Christ himself. What does Hebrews 11 verse 6 say? That if we come to God in faith, believing that he is, and that he is a rewarder of all who diligently seek him, then we'll find him. He will make himself known to you if you search. Listen, my friends sitting here, watching on the video, those note sheets we do up filled with all those verses I referenced, they're not just to keep track of where we are in the sermon, not just to tick them off as you go by, knowing how far I've gotten and wondering, am I ever going to finish as I keep going through them all? I put them there for a reason. Why? So that you can go home and eagerly examine the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Don't take my word for it. You say, wait a minute, you're the pastor. You're supposed to be knowing what you're saying. You're right. But sometimes in the zeal of the moment, 
I say things that, that come out wrong or I misquote something, check it out. Go and look. If I may be so bold, don't listen lazy. Listen active. Take those little note sheets and examine. Look and see. Search the scriptures, for they speak of Christ. Search the scriptures, and in them you'll find forgiveness and life and hope and peace with God and peace with men. You'll find a joy that you'll never experience anywhere else. So how was Paul used by God to turn his world upside down? He persisted in his ministry despite repeated and painful opposition. He presented the gospel at every opportunity. He corrected false understandings and he reasoned with them from the scriptures to show it was necessary for Christ to suffer, to rise, and that Jesus is the Christ. And he almost certainly encouraged them. In fact, I'm going to say he did encourage them to examine the scriptures for themselves. So how are we going to do it? Exactly the same way. We persist in our ministry. Don't stop going out on the street corners and handing out gospel tracts and Bibles. Don't stop talking to your friends about Christ. For those who went out letterboxing, there was a guy coming around behind you, and you probably didn't know this, pulling all the tracts out of the letterboxes and scrumpling them up and throwing them in the garbage. So we print more and we put more in. It doesn't matter. We got more paper. We persist. I don't think of that, what happened yesterday with that guy, those two guys, two different guys getting mad at me and calling me up, swearing their heads off in the phone at me because I was putting a gospel track in their little box. I think that's a good thing. You know why? It, the gospel was poking a nerve at them. That's a good thing. So we give thanks we pray that whoever it was may actually find one of those tracks and not scrumple it up and keep it and maybe read it. God's at work in our community. So we persist. We present the gospel, the whole biblical gospel. And we encourage them to look for themselves, to seek, to search, and to find God, because they will. The Bible promises if you search diligently, you'll find them. And that's kind of been what I've been trying to do in this whole sermon, was not just to talk about Paul's reasoning, but actually give you the reasoning. Not just talk about preaching, but actually preach the message. And not just tell you to encourage, well, actually, yeah, tell you to encourage you to go look for yourselves. Don't take my word for it. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not here for a good time, in that sense. We're here to turn our world right side up for Christ and the gospel. We need to get busy. Amen? Let's pray. Would you stand with me and we'll pray together then we'll sing the benediction, please. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again and we just bow in worship before you. For there is indeed no God like the Lord our God. Father, for a moment, just to pause and think about some of those texts in the Old Testament that speak of the wrath and the anger of Almighty God at sinners. To know, Father, that there will come a day when at Christ's return, some of them will cry out for the rocks to fall on them, looking rather to be crushed under the weight of a rock than to face God Almighty in his anger. Father, when we realize that the Lord Jesus Christ went to a cross, he went to a garden first, 
And there in great wrestling and agony of his soul, he wrestled knowing full well that he must go. And he turned, and the Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Father, we thank you and we praise you that Jesus has borne your wrath for us in love. Love so amazing, love so rich, love so beyond our understanding. Paul could even pray that the Ephesian believers would be strengthened in their inner man, that they might have the strength to comprehend the height, the length, the depth, the weight, the fullness of Christ's love for them. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us, that we might grasp the love of Christ, that we might see it in the cross. But Father, also the great joy, the great hope we have that the tomb is empty. Jesus is risen again. He is alive. He that was alive and was dead is alive forevermore. Father, we praise you and we thank you for that. We thank you, O God, for the new life we have in Christ that his righteousness has been applied to us. Father, we give thanks. Praise you, O God, for all that you have done. Father, we pray that we would take the charge to go and make disciples seriously. We would take the understanding that, that has been given to us not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. Father, we pray that you would do a great work in this church. Father, use those gospels that were sent out yesterday, the letter, the, the tracts put in letter boxes. Father, we pray. Lord, we cry out to you for one, two, twenty, a hundred people that'll pick that up, read it, and search the scriptures to see that these things are true and be saved. Lord, we ask you for all these things in the precious name of our Savior and our Lord. Amen.